Alright, so Pastor Rex and his family are still on vacation this week, so he is still gone. Um, I know me and him have kind of been alternating the past few weeks. He was gone, I was here, I was gone, he was here, he's gone, I'm here. I'll be gone next week again, and then he'll be back, and then we're kind of over the craziness of the summer where everyone's gone and, and doing stuff. Um, so that's where he is. You can just continue to be praying for him and his family during this time. Um, but go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, that's, if you've been here when I've preached over the course of the summer, I've been in this passage each time I've preached. Um, almost done a little mini-series on my own this summer, just in, in the this is not the fourth time I'll have preached over the summer. Uh, so what I've been talking about over the summer is spiritual growth and maturity, uh, about what it looks like for us to be growing as Christians and then as a church as well, and then how exactly that happens now. So that's what I've been talking about the previous three times I've preached, and I'm going to continue talking about that today. So just let me do some quick review before I jump in, uh, just so you kind of know where I'm coming from as, as I preach today. So back in June, I know that was a while ago, but in June I, I talked to from Ephesians 4, 17 through 24, about how we are to be renewing our minds, uh, that we have had our minds renewed once we came to know Christ, and that now our responsibility as believers is to continue renewing our minds with thoughts of God and growing in our knowledge of Him. And then the second time, back in July, I talked about our hearts. How as believers, we have had our hearts renewed. Our hearts have been moved from being stony and hearts now becoming soft. They're, they're sensitive to the glory of God. And part of our spiritual growth is nurturing our hearts so we're growing in our affections for God and, uh, and our love for Him and for His people. And then two weeks ago, I talked about maturity in our daily lives. Uh, I, I talked about how we have undergone such a great transformation of our minds and our hearts, how we have an entirely new nature. And out of that new nature now, we are to be living new lives. And so our daily lives and actions should be being transformed on a day-to-day -day basis. And so this week, I want to bring this little series to a close by continuing to talk about spiritual growth and maturity. Now, I could go on talking about this forever. We could talk for years and can preach millions of sermons about what spiritual growth is and what it looks like, how it happens. We could pick apart all these details. But I'm just going to bring this to a close today. And the point I want to make today is going to be the main point. It's going to carry us through the rest of this sermon. And that point is this. So in light of everything we've talked about, of what spiritual growth is, renewing our minds, our hearts, and our daily lives now, pursuing spiritual growth and maturity is a community effort. Let me say that again. It's the main point for today. Pursuing spiritual growth and maturity is a community effort. All right, so it is not something that we are to be pursuing on our own but something that we are to be pursuing in close community with fellow believers, with brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, we live in an extremely individualistic culture, do we not? It's all about us. It tells us to keep to ourselves. Uh, don't share anything with anyone else. Uh, we're, we're taught to be very independent. 
and self-sufficient, to not rely on anyone else. And these aren't necessarily bad things, but, but unfortunately, I think this mindset has crept into the church. And as a result, so many of us have bought into this version of Christianity that says our own personal faith is, is just that. It's our own personal faith. That it's just a completely personal matter that in terms of our faith in Christ, we operate and live completely independent from other believers. And that in our faith, we are self-sufficient. That we are reliant upon nobody else. That we are responsible for nobody else. And that we are responsible to nobody else. And so we've bought into this kind of lone ranger Christianity where it's, it's just me and Jesus and and then you, it's just you and Jesus, and we're all just kind of walking with Christ individually and separately. All right, now I want to say this, that our saving faith is absolutely a, a personal and individual matter. We are not saved by anyone else's faith. We are not saved uh, by being part of any certain groups, but we are saved individually and personally by coming to know Christ and trusting in him personally for ourselves. So there is absolutely a personal and individual aspect to our faith. But I think the problem is sometimes we take that too far. So like I said, we're living in this kind of lone ranger Christianity where it's just me and Jesus and then you, it's just you and Jesus. We're all just doing this ourselves. Now, when you read the New Testament it becomes painfully obvious that it knows absolutely nothing of Lone Ranger Christianity. It knows absolutely nothing of a completely independent, self-sufficient faith in which we are responsible for nobody else and responsible to nobody else and just reliant upon ourselves. It knows nothing of this. It's just me and Jesus talk. It knows nothing of that. But what we see over and over again in the New Testament is a version of Christianity that is defined not by independence, but by interdependence on one another. It's not defined by self-sufficiency and self-reliance, but by community, by fellowship, by mutual encouragement, by brotherly love, by oneness, by solidarity. And you see this over and over again in the New Testament. A, a good little Bible study for you might be to read through the whole New Testament and make note of every time you see the phrase, one another, or together, or something similar to that. There are so many one another statements in the New Testament. And Ephesians 4 is one of those passages that tells us a great deal about community. And it's a passage in which we see a one-another statement. All right, so in the previous three sermons I did over the summer, I preached through Ephesians 4, 17 through 32. I did the second half of Ephesians 4. So today I'm going to do the first half of Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 16. All right, now, before I read this passage, I'm going to read verses 1 through 16 altogether. Let me just stop and pause and consider the original context in which Ephesians was written and in which it was read. All right, so the book of Ephesians is a letter. It was a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus, which was a Greek city in the first century. 
All right, so, so first of all, this was a letter, and it was a letter written not to individual Christians, but to a church, to a community of believers. So when Paul wrote this, he didn't just write a copy and go to his copy machine, make a bunch of copies, and then just send them out to all these individuals. Or he didn't send them to be dispersed out individually. But he wrote this letter with the, the mindset that he was writing to a community of Christians, to a church. And so that was the, the context in which it was written. It's what he had in mind as he wrote it. And when this letter would have gotten to the church in Ephesus, what would have happened is they, on their weekly gathering, it would have been pulled out and they would have read it to the whole gathering, to the whole gathered church in Ephesus. This letter would have been read. And so when they, when they took it in, they would not just have been taking it in as individuals but they would have been taking it in as a body of believers, as a fellowship of saints, as brothers and sisters in Christ, as a church community. So the point I'm making is that this letter to the Ephesians and and all the rest of the New Testament letters for that matter were written with the gathered church in mind and they were read to the gathered church. And so as we read this passage here this morning, hear this, not, not just as an individual, but, but hear it as a community, as a group, as the gathered church, and let it fall on you as the people of Christ. So that being said, let me read Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 16. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who has also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ." until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. All right, now I, now I know that's a lot we just read. And so what I hope to do is I hope to cover that entire passage kind of broadly to show you Paul's line of reasoning in that whole passage. All right, so... 
We'll get there eventually, but for now, we're just going to start with verse 1. So look at verse 1 with me. Right, where, where Paul now turns to the Ephesians and says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Right, so he begins all of chapter 4 with a very general, overarching command. And that general command is to walk or to live in a manner worthy of the calling to which they have been called. And that general command that he gives in verse 1 is going to carry out through the rest of Ephesians chapter 4. It's like that's the very general command he gives in verse 1. And in the rest of the chapter now, he's going to get into the nitty-gritty details of what exactly that looks like. So if you just read through Ephesians 4, though, he he says that in verse 1, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. It's the broad general command. But he really doesn't get into the details of that until verse 17. So if you look at verse 17 with me, that's where he says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. We preached that that verse in the following verses in my previous sermons. But that verse is very similar to verse 1. In both verses, he's urging them to live in a certain way, to walk in a certain manner. So my question is, why the break? Why does he go from verse 1, giving this general command to walk in this way, and then why does he wait 15 verses until verse 17 now, to really get into the, into the specifics of what that looks like to walk and live this way. Right, doesn't, doesn't this seem odd? Like, wouldn't it just flowed better if he said, live in a manner worthy of your calling, and here's how you do that, and he gives us, you know, X, Y, and Z, all these steps and, and these very practical pieces of advice to do that. But why the break? Why does he go through verses 2 through 16 before doing that? And I think he does this because I think there was something else important that Paul wanted us to know before he got into the specifics. Before he really got into the nitty-gritty details, there's something he wanted us to get so that we would know that before he tells us those details. And if you read verses 1 through 16, I think what it is that he wants us to know is that this this command to walk in a manner worthy of our calling is not something that we carry out on our own. It's not something that we do alone. We cannot fulfill the command of Ephesians 4.1 by ourselves. He wants us to know that this is a community project, living in a manner worthy of our calling. He wants us to know that pursuing spiritual growth and maturity is a community effort. So look at verses 2 and 3 with me. Notice how he gives that command in verse 1, and then right away in verse 2, he jumps straight into talking about things pertaining to community. So he gives the command, verse 1, then verse 2 in the same sentence says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. There's that one another statement I was talking about. And then verse 3 goes on to say, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit 
and the bond of peace. Just look at all the words in those three verses dealing with community. Humility, gentleness, patience, all things that are lived out in community with other believers. Bearing with one another in love. Maintaining the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So right away, we see that in Paul's mind, this duty to live out our calling as Christians is something that's done in community with other believers. That part of fulfilling this command that he has given is living in this kind of unity and community that he he tells us about in verses 2 and 3. In in these verses, he's talking especially about Christians. Now, should we have patience and humility and love towards all people? Yes, absolutely. The whole Bible would attest to that. But Paul, in his mind here, especially is thinking of Christians and how we interact with one another in the community of the church. And we know that because in verse 4, he says, There is one body and one spirit. He talks about the Spirit in verse 3 as well, the unity of the Spirit. So in talking about the Spirit, he is of course referring to the Holy Spirit who indwells all believers and therefore unites us into one body. So when he's talking about this kind of unity and fellowship that we are to be sharing, he is specifically talking about those people who have the Spirit of God in them. So we absolutely should be treating everybody with love and peace and humility and gentleness. That's part of how we are salt and light to this world. But how much more so should we be treating each other with these things, united by one spirit inside us? Paul goes on in verses 4 through 6 to go into even more detail. So he says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace in verse 3. And now in verse 4, he goes on to list all of these various things that unite us. To list all of the things that bond us together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Alright, let's look at and take these one by one as he names them. Alright, verse 4, he says, there is one body. Now, when he says body, he is referring to the the body of Christ, to the whole church. He means that all believers have been united into one single body together. And even though we are separated into distinct local churches in different areas of the, the city or the county, or even different parts of the country, or even different parts of the world, we are all one body of Christ And so think about this. Because we are filled with the Holy Spirit, just as every other believer in this world is filled with the Holy Spirit, we are part of the one body of Christ. You are a part of the same body of Christ as believers in Africa, in Asia, in South America, in Europe, in Australia, in every part of the world. There are not separate bodies of Christ. 
There is not a white American body of Christ. There is not an African American body of Christ or a Hispanic body of Christ. There is not a South American body of Christ nor an Australian body of Christ. There is one global body of Christ. We are a part of one body as believers. And our local church here is a little manifestation of that. We're a little outpost, a little miniature body of the whole body worldwide. We are one body. And one spirit, he says in verse 4. There's one body and one spirit. As we said, this is referring to the Holy Spirit. So we are united to all these believers into one body by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not limited to certain believers. He's not limited to those of a certain more spiritual class. But all believers in Christ have the Spirit in them and are therefore united into one body by the Spirit. To have the Spirit is to belong to the body and to belong to the body is to have the Spirit. In the book of Acts, right away, right after the resurrection of Christ when the church was just exploding, the gospel went to the, the Jewish people first. And they believed in Christ as their Messiah and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And at the time, there was a distinct separation between the Jews and the Gentiles. It was an ethnic separation, a kind of racial thing. And they were separated. The, the Jews did not think highly of the Gentiles. And so think of the way the Jews marveled when the first time they saw the Holy Spirit poured out onto the Gentiles. In their mind, the Gentiles were below them. How could they receive the Holy Spirit? But there's one instance in the book of Acts where this happens. The Holy Spirit is poured out on the Gentiles and everyone marvels. Because the same Holy Spirit who has filled the Jewish people has also filled the Gentile people. The same Holy Spirit that has filled us here in the United States has filled believers in every part of the world. And so we're united into one body through the one Holy Spirit. And he goes on in verse 4. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. So you have one body, one spirit, and one hope. As members of the one body of Christ, filled with the one spirit, we share the same ultimate hope. The hope that one day we will share in Christ's resurrection. That at our death or at his return, we will once and for all be joined to him. To live with him in glory forever. To know and enjoy him forever. We share this one hope with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. He goes on in verse 5 to say, one Lord. Now the one, one Lord, that, that word is almost like uh, one, one boss, one, one head overall. The guy who's in charge, so to speak. As members of this body... Filled with the one spirit. We have one Lord. There's one Lord whom we worship. And so for believers all over the world, our ultimate greatest Lord is not any certain president. It's not any certain prime minister or even any certain dictator. But our Lord is Christ himself. And we are united into this one body who shares this one Lord, the Lord over all the universe, Christ himself. We have one Lord. 
In verse 5, he says, one Lord, one faith. And we're united into this body with one Lord. We're sharing one faith. Now, when he says one faith here, he's not speaking about some kind of generic uh, spirituality or some kind of generic faith in a higher power, but he's talking specifically about one faith in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We share this faith as believers. Faith in Christ's virgin birth, his perfect life, his substitutionary death, his finished work on the cross, and his glorious resurrection, and faith that by being united to him, we will share in his resurrection and in his life. This is the faith we share as believers. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. All of us who are in Christ have undergone what's called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We've all been baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. And the water baptism that we have all undergone is, is an outward picture of that. So there's one baptism, one baptism of the Spirit, one water baptism that brings us into the family of God. That makes us members of this community. And finally, after listing all of those things, Paul says, and there is one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Ultimately, there is one God we are serving as one body. So as you said, the, the believers in every part of the world are worshiping the same God in their own distinct language, maybe, maybe even in their own distinct style of music or of worship, but we're all worshiping the one true God, and we're united by that. So brothers and sisters, we have been united into one body by one spirit. We share in one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one true God. This is the deepest bond imaginable. We are in the truest sense of the word, brothers and sisters in Christ. Right, so take a minute, just look around the room at your brothers and sisters in Christ who are here today those members of the family of God who are sitting next to you or in the row in front of you or behind you. Think about them as your brothers and sisters united into this one body. Take a minute and think about your brothers and sisters in Christ who are members of other local churches in this area. Who even though they worship at another place, they are part of this one global body of Christ. Think about them and this bond you share with them. Or think about your brothers and sisters in Christ who right now are worshiping as a body, member of this body of Christ in another part of the country. Or think of your brothers and sisters in Christ who are in other parts of the world who look totally different than you, speak a totally different language than you, are part of a totally different culture than you, and yet are united into this one body of Christ by these things that Paul lists in these verses here. This is the most fundamental aspect of our identity. This is what defines us most. 
as being members of the body of Christ, being united by one Lord, one hope, one faith, one baptism, one God. This is what defines us most. We are not ultimately defined by what town we're from or what school we go to or what team we play for. We're not defined by what sport we play or coach. We're not defined by what team we cheer for or don't cheer for. We're not defined by what our hobbies are. Nor even are we ultimately defined as Americans. But we are ultimately defined as members of the one global body of Christ, united by one spirit, sharing in one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God. This is what defines us most. And because this is what defines us most, at the the deepest, most fundamental level, we share this common bond with all other believers. So that you have more in common with a brother or sister in Christ in another part of the world than you have with a neighbor who is similar to you in every way yet does not know Christ. So having this bond and having this peace with one another, what ought to our relationships with one another look like? How ought we treat one another? Having this bond, this deep, fundamental bond, what should our relationships look like? Let me give you this illustration. Uh, So my younger sister, Maren, and I are Michigan fans. And we live in Ohio. And I'm not trying to stir anything up. So I I know how we get around here and talking about this. We start, like, foaming at the mouth, and it just becomes very rabid. So just chill for a second. I'm making an illustration. Um, so we're Michigan fans living in Ohio, and most of the people around here being Ohio are Ohio State fans. And I know this might be hard to believe, and I know none of you would ever do anything like this, um, but we often catch a lot of flack from Ohio State fans around here. So we'll often get very childish remarks uh, about having poop on our shirts. I don't know if I can say that word up here, but... Uh, Or people ask if we couldn't afford anything better or if our parents dropped us on our heads when we were little. Um, you You know, the kind of brilliant, witty remarks that I came up with and thought were funny in first grade. We get those all the time. Uh, so if I ever hear that, I'll probably just ignore you. Um, but I'll just say that being Michigan fans in Ohio, generally speaking, when that topic comes up, we are not treated with, uh, humility or, or gentleness or respect or, or peace or patience. And so we joke about this all the time. But when we go to Ann Arbor, Michigan, do you know how we feel? We love it. We walk down the street wearing our Michigan shirts. Everyone else is wearing Michigan shirts and hats. And we're just going, hey, hey you know, go blue. Yeah, go blue. Yeah, you too. And we just love it. And it's hard to describe, but there's this, there's this kind of unity. And there's this, there's this bond between all of us. And even though we don't know any of the people personally... I don't know what they're like. I don't know what his name is. I don't know what his hobbies are, what his other interests are. But because we share this common bond of of cheering for the same team, of of desiring that, that same thing, there's a certain humility and gentleness about our interactions with one another. Somebody pulls out in front of me and cuts me off in traffic. Instead of the typical 
you know, shaking my fist. What are you doing? It's the, yeah, you know, go ahead, man. That's all right. Go blue. It's like, our our fur, food at the restaurant takes a little too long to get out. You know, hey, that's all right, man. It's, you know, we're, gentleness and respect. There's a certain it, just bond we share, and we just bear with one another in love. And many of you have probably experienced that as fans of other teams, whether you go to Columbus or South Bend or wherever you go. There's just this general goodwill nature because you share this common bond. Now, church, if cheering for the same sports teams can unite and bond us in this way, if that can cause us to treat each other differently and with humility and with gentleness and with patience and love, how much more should we as brothers and sisters in Christ be treating one another with gentleness and patience and love, bearing with one another in our faults? We share a much deeper bond than simply cheering for the same sports team. We have been united into one body by one spirit. We have one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. So how much more should our relationships with fellow believers be characterized by humility and gentleness and patience and love, bearing with one another, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit? In John 13, 35, Jesus said that all people will know we are his disciples by the way we love one another. All people will know that we are Christ's disciples by the way we love one another. And again, he is talking about loving all people everywhere, but he has in mind specifically our interactions with one another as his fellow disciples and believers. He says that people will know us, know that we belong to Christ by the way we love one another as brothers and sisters in him. Right, people will know we are his by the way we love and care for one another. And when we do this, when we live as the church united by one, into one body, by one spirit, sharing one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God, when this truly unites us and changes the way we treat one another, we will display the glory of God to the world. His glory will shine through us out, and the world will know that we belong to Christ. Now you may be sitting here thinking, so we read verses 1 through 6 right there. It's talking about unity. Now what about the last, you know, 7 through 16, last 9 verses or so? What does what we just talked about, that unity as one body, what does that have to do now with spiritual growth and maturity? Let me try to connect the dots for you. All right, so verses 1 through 6, Paul gives us this whole vision for the unity of the church as one body united by this deep bond. Now, look at verse 7 with me. He goes right from talking about that unity in, in verses 1 through 6 to verse 7 saying, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And so in this next section, what he gets into is the spiritual gifts and how we all as believers, members of this one body, each have a gift 
that we bring to the table to serve the larger body of Christ. Right? So in other words, having this unity that he talks about in verses 1 through 6, being united into this one body, he now says, and each of you, being a member of this body, has a gift. And now look ahead with me to verse 16. He says, from whom the whole body, there's the body of Christ again, the one body we're a part of, the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. All right, so verses 1 through 6, Paul gives us this vision of the one body, united into this one body by all these, these deep things. Now, in verses 7 through 16, his whole point is, now, you're one body sharing this one common bond. Now, as members of this one body, each of you having this gift need to be working together, doing your part to ensure that the whole body is growing in maturity into the fullness of Christ. It's not the responsibility of just the pastors to make sure the body is growing, although it is our responsibility. The whole body makes the whole body grow. When each member, each individual Christian is working in unity, in love and peace with the other people in the church, using their gifts, the body will grow. It will mature into the fullness of Christ. All right, the, his point in verse 16 is the whole body makes the whole body grow. And so from the beginning of Ephesians 4, follow Paul's line of reasoning here. In verses 1 through 6, he said that we're all united into one body and that we share this deep, common bond as co-members of the body of Christ. And then in verses 7 through 16, he says, Okay, now being united into this body, sharing this one bond, you are to be working together for the growth of the whole body. You have a role to play, and the body grows when each member is playing his or her role. And then in verses 17 through 32, he gets into the specifics of what spiritual growth is and what it looks like. So in all those sermons, those first three sermons I preached on 17 through 32, where we talked about renewing our minds and nurturing our hearts and transforming our lives, when Paul gives all those commands in verses 17 through 32, he wants us to read those commands with verses 1 through 16 in mind. So that we are not pursuing spiritual growth apart from one another, but with one another. He wants us to know that these commands he gives in verses 17 through 32, this is a community effort that we are not to be pursuing independently of one another, but with one another. Encouraging one another, exhorting one another on to spiritual growth working together to ensure that the whole body is growing. So again, Paul does not want us to pursue Lone Ranger Christianity. Does not want us to pursue growth and maturation completely on our own, but in 
and with our brothers and sisters in Christ. So as we close, now let's turn to some application for us here today. And worship team, you can go ahead and come forward. All right, so church, as we pursue greater and greater spiritual growth as individual Christians, and as a community, as a body of Christ, a church, we must know that we cannot do it alone. Pursuing spiritual growth and maturity is a community effort. And we must pursue this growth together in community. And so what do we do? Where do we go from here? Well, as the church, we are to be engaging in intentional fellowship with other believers. We are to be engaging in intentional fellowship with other believers. Now notice how I use the word intentional there. I use that word because when I'm talking about fellowship, I'm not just talking about getting together as people who are both Christians and just doing, just hanging out together and, and doing whatever. Now that's good and we should do that, but that's not what I mean by intentional biblical fellowship. See, biblical fellowship is much deeper than that. It's much more intentional and purposeful. I want to put a quote up on the screen. Um, but Matthew Harmon says this about biblical fellowship. He says, In a day when the term fellowship is loosely applied to any time believers gather together for any purpose, it is essential to regain the biblical understanding of fellowship. What distinguishes true biblical fellowship from simple shared interests and experiences among non-Christians is the gospel-centered nature of biblical fellowship. As such, it is oriented around encouraging, exhorting, teaching, praying, giving, suffering, etc., with fellow believers in an effort to follow Christ. Right, we love to throw the term fellowship around, don't we? I mean, let's go, let's go fellowship tonight. And I like how he says that the term fellowship is loosely applied to any time believers gather for any purpose. But he says we must regain a proper understanding of biblical fellowship. He says true biblical fellowship is oriented around encouraging, exhorting, teaching, praying, giving, suffering, etc. And doing this with fellow believers in an effort to follow Christ more closely and more intimately. And so in our various ministries at this church, that's what we're trying to create. Our goal in having all of these ministries is to create an environment where biblical fellowship can happen, where we can teach, exhort, encourage, pray, give, suffer together with an effort to follow Christ more so that together as the one body of Christ we can grow into maturity. And so what's the practical application from this sermon? What's the next step? Involve yourself in the life of the body. Right, start by making a commitment to be here on Sunday mornings. You're a valuable member of this church body. So be here. Make a commitment to being here. Right, and then not just on Sundays, but 
commits to be getting involved in all of our other various ministries. Right, not that we have to get involved in every single one, but man, there's so many things. Get your kids involved with GPS and Tupac on Wednesday nights starting this fall. There's East and West for women's and for men. There's men's Bible studies and women's Bible studies. Just the informal, having people over for dinner to get to know them, to see what God is doing in their lives. Or join a small group that we have up here. By the way, if you've signed up, we haven't forgotten about you. It's been a busy summer. We're turning our attention to that now. Uh, So if you signed up, don't worry about filling another one out. But we have all these ministries, not just for the sake of busyness, but but for the sake of, of growth. That together in these ministries, you might engage one another in biblical fellowship and together spur one another on to growth. Right, so involve yourself. Commit to being here on Sundays and, and then commit to involving yourself in the life of the body. There are so many things to the, the Christian life as a church besides just sitting next to one another in rows on a Sunday morning. Right, for us to be a healthy, growing church, we need to be united in this one body, working together, involved with one another in fellowship, in this community, seeking growth together. Right, so all that being said, would you stand with me and let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for saving us, for redeeming us as your children into one body, filling us with your one spirit, giving us one hope, one faith, one Lord, and allowing us to worship you, our one true God. Father, I pray for us here this morning that you would unite us as a church. Help us to maintain the bond of peace. Help us to bear with one another in love and in patience and humility. And Father, I pray that as this body, that you would help each member here, each part of this body, to work together, to fulfill his or her her role. That together we might pursue you, you more, that together we might grow in our maturity. So Father, help us to grow. We know that we can't do this alone, but by your spirit in us, grow us, make us more like your son, Jesus. Show us what it means to engage in biblical fellowship with one another. Help us with this, God, by your spirit in us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.